Hey there! I'm really glad that you've come to check out the KZMC Weekly Teaching. My name is Ryan Yancey and I'm the lead pastor. KZMC gathers together for worship every Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. in person. You can also join us by our live stream available on YouTube. If you're from the area and you're not already connected to a church, we'd love to have you come join us. You can find the full details at kzmc.ca. It's my hope and it's my prayer that God will speak to you through this teaching. May you have a marvelous day. I have here on the, uh, on the stage with me a table and two chairs. You may have noticed that our, uh, so I'm just doing a, a little two-week mini-series here, and the title is Two Empty Chairs. Who are you making space for? So I, I want to mention before I proceed that this lovely little table set is from Blessings, on loan from Blessings. I think it was for sale for $60. There's two more chairs that I have in my office, so if you're in need of a table and chairs, in uh, two weeks, you could save us a whole lot of trouble and purchase it, give the money to Blessings, and you could pick it up here so I don't have to take it back. That would be just, just marvelous. I, I, told, uh, I told Ann that I'll, I'll give some advertising for their wares since they uh, have loaned this to us. Now, with, with, my, uh, with my series, it, it would be much better if we had a big, long table. And as I, as I spoke, we had a number of people sitting at that table with two, two empty chairs. But I can't imagine that any of you want to be a prop for my sermon and, and sit still in, in one place on the stage for the duration of the, uh, of the teaching time. If you'd like to, let me know. And I do have some other chairs I could set you up here up on stage next week. Two empty chairs. There is something beautiful and significant that happens when we gather in worship. Sorry. Gathering in worship. I put those two words together so often. Not when we gather. When we gather together for a meal around the table. No doubt it's a form of worship, but when we gather together for a meal. And, and throughout COVID, that's something that's been hard, something that we've been missing, the opportunity to be with people in, in quite, this, quite the same way. But there's something significant that happens. Uh, last Monday, Monday of this past week, I had my last uh, time together with our relearning community team, that, the first huddle that we went through. We haven't been meeting for about a year and a half now, but I thought, you know what, let's get together one more time before I proceed on. And it was an emotional time, and, and we're, we're very close friends. And a big reason <clears throat> for that is because we shared meals together on a regular basis. There's something about sharing food and drink together that facilitates conversation as it, as it drifts and kids ask, or the adults ask the kids, how's, how's your day at school, whatever, as we ask how work was, as we dive into the deeper things of, of life around a table. There's something about being around a table. There's a reason why Jesus, so often in his ministry, he gathered with people around a table for dinner. Something beautiful and good about being together at a table. Now, when Jewish people celebrate the Seder feast, Seder feast, it's another word for how they celebrate the Passover meal. Not all Jews do this, but it is a custom among some to leave an empty chair at the table. And it's known that that chair is reserved for Elijah. There's some prophecy in the Old Testament that says that Elijah will return and prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Now, we know that that was fulfilled in John the Baptist. John the Baptist was that Messiah figure who pointed to Jesus. But for, for Jewish folks, they have this empty chair, and they're waiting for Elijah. And there's actually a tradition where they, some, some will have the kids will go to the front door, and they'll open 
the door, and they'll verbally invite Elijah to come and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But every year, they set a place at the table, and they keep this chair open. Now, do they literally think that Elijah's going to show up at their particular house for that feast? No, because lots of families are doing this at the same time. They're waiting in expectation that Elijah will come, but they set this empty place as a reminder, as a symbol, as a practice. Reminding themselves that Elijah is coming. God is still at work. God is still unfolding his story, and we wait. And these symbols are helpful to orient our hearts, our thoughts, our actions to what we're living in wait of. Life is chaotic. Life is busy, and it's so easy to forget about these things, to crowd them out if we don't have these symbols and these practices to remind ourselves. And so I'm kind of running with that idea of them keeping a chair open as a symbol. And I'm, in, I'm inviting us to think of the dinner table as having two open places and wondering, who do we need to make space for? Who do we need to anticipate coming to be with us? And actually, I'm going to issue a challenge to you with this little two-week series. For the next two weeks, every time you set the table at home, whether it's just you and your spouse, whether it's you by yourself, whether it's you and a pile of kids, I invite you actually to, as a symbol for these next two weeks, to set two extra places. Pull two extra chairs up. Maybe you've got to put a leaf in the table to make room for this. Set a plate and a cup and cutlery as a symbol, as a reminder. So we're going to do that in, in my family. Every, so there's six of us around the table. We're going to have eight spaces. And two we will leave empty to make space for these two guests that we need to make room for. And I'll be, I'll be sharing that along the way. So I invite you to do that as a challenge over the next two weeks as a symbol, as a reminder. Two empty chairs. The first chair is for God. To invite God to our table. To invite God into our conversations. To invite God into our lives. My very first Sunday here, I, I can't imagine that any of you remember this. I don't expect that you would. But I remember that my very first Sunday here in my role as lead pastor with KZMC, I kind of went on a bit of a rant in which I said, we as a church, as long as I have any influence or any say with, with kind of my, and, and knowing this is fully the case before I arrive, but, but just to continue that and to build on it, we will be a people who are about Jesus. And I don't remember what all went into that rant, but I remember I went on for about kind of five minutes of when we do this, it's going to be about Jesus. When we do this, it's going to be about Jesus. We are a people who are going to be about Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. He's our King. He's the one we proclaim. He's the one that we place our trust in. He's the one who has saved us. We will be a people about Jesus. And that hasn't changed and so as we talk about this idea of the two empty chairs and I unfold this idea of who, who are we called to invite to our table, we first need to ask the question, well, what is the table that we're inviting our guests to? What is the table that we gather around? We as the people of KZMC are really good at gathering together. We love being together. This was evidenced by the, the great time, the good turnout we had at, at church camping the other week. It's evidenced by, you know, I was chatting with, with Dave and Ruth Siebert the other day, and how are, how are you guys doing? Are you doing okay? You know, are you, do you have anything you need help with? And they start telling me about all the people bringing meals to them. 
I was like, yeah. Like, this is something that you as a church are really, really good at. God has gifted you, and you've owned that call. You've owned that part of what it means to follow Jesus. I love it. It's so good. We're good at gathering together. And so I'm offering you an invitation as, you th- as we think about gathering together around a table. What is that table? What is the foundational piece that we gather around? And my hope, my prayer, is that that would be Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, you can whip out your phone if you don't have a, a paper Bible with you. Titus chapter 3, and we're going to do verses 3 to 7. Titus 3, 3 to 7. This is one of the most succinct, clear, brief descriptions of what the gospel of Jesus is. Titus 3, 3 to 7. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated, and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things He had done, we had done. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. There are other passages you could turn to, and this one certainly doesn't say it all, but if someone asks you, well, what is the gospel? Or if you want just a couple verses to kind of point to what God has done, this is a great text, Titus 3, 3 to 7. A great summary of the gospel. In this age, there is marvelous temptation, strong temptation, to drift from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I see it. I see it all around. I see that pull in my life. I see that, that pull in the lives of people around me. I see that pull for the broader Christian church. There's incredible temptation to drift from the gospel of Jesus. To drift towards simply being a people who do good things for God. To do good things for God without faith in Jesus, a repentance and turning toward the death of Jesus on the cross to save you from your sin. As I see this pull, as I see some drift, it is deeply, deeply concerning. It's tempting for all of us. When we care about our children, when we care about our loved ones who are walking away from faith in Christ, it's tempting to begin to kind of say, well, you know what, as long as we're a good person. As long as we have some kind of belief in God. It's tempting when we see horrible abuses that have been done in the name of Jesus. Whether it be sexual abuse scandals in Christian churches, whether it be the abuse of power, all kinds of examples you can think of. There's been terrible things done in the name of Jesus. And so it's tempting to be like, well, you know what? I don't know, if people had the name of Jesus and they did all that horrible stuff, well, maybe it doesn't really matter. We're just going to be a people who do good. We're going to be a people who work for reconciliation and peace. It's tempting when the world says that we're judgmental, that we're exclusive, hateful, all because we say that Jesus is the one true Savior of all humanity. 
These are just three examples. There are so many realities that pull us, have the possibility, the cap capability of pulling us away from the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And it's pretty easy to happen that we slowly become a people who are about doing good for God. And maybe following kind of a, a, an idea of Jesus as a super loving guy, but have lost a glimpse of what the gospel is about. We decide for ourselves what's right. We pick and choose what parts of the gospel we want to believe and hang on to, quietly tucking away the parts that we don't really prefer. And to be clear, that can apply equally to both folks on the conservative end of the spectrum and on the liberal end of the spectrum. For all of us, whichever kind of end of the spectrum we might be on, it's pretty easy to tuck away the parts of the gospel, the parts of Jesus that we don't prefer to pay too much attention to. And so let me be clear that this drifting away from the gospel of Jesus, as we just read in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, this idea of being rewashed by the Holy Spirit, this idea of being justified through the mercy of Jesus accomplished at the cross, to drift away from that and toward just generally being a good people, doing good for God, is a drift toward spiritual death. It's a drift toward the death of God's people. Now, I don't know, maybe this feels a little bit personal for me. In recent years, um, a very close friend of mine, and they're not a part of this community, they live far away, but a very, very close friend of mine has drifted from the gospel of Jesus. He now would say that Jesus is just kind of our best understanding of who God is, the way that, that we've come to perceive who God is, but not necessarily uh, the truth for all people. He's an ethical example. He's a model to live by, but not the one who we needed to save us through his work at the cross to save us from sin. And this has been hard to watch. It's a drift toward a false gospel. He still likes God. Still kind of likes some aspects of Jesus, but it's a drift away from the gospel who Jesus truly is and what Jesus has truly done. So for me, that kind of is where it hits personally, and I think that we see this in people around us. And, and so as, as I share this with you, it's an encouragement, it's an exhortation that if we're truly going to be people about Jesus in a way that is going to be and give life fully on earth and life in the age to come, then we need to be about who Jesus truly is. And anything else, actually, is to cut off the branch that we're sitting on or to kick out the stepladder that we're standing on the top of. To say, you know what, I like Jesus. He was a good, peaceful teacher. But yeah, I don't know if we needed him to die on the cross to save us from our sins. To do that is to cut off the branch that we're sitting on. It simply doesn't make sense. And the reason it doesn't make sense is you never would have heard about Jesus 2,000 years later if it wasn't for the testimony of people who deeply believed that Jesus was the Savior of all. The story of Jesus never would have made it to us. He would have been some random radical teacher that maybe you could find in the footnotes of history from Palestine. But it never would have been passed along to us. Guys like John Wycliffe, who insisted that the Bible be translated into the English language. He was hunted down after he died. His bones were dug up and, and uh, burned. If they'd have had the opportunity to get a hold of him, they would have burned him before he died because he insisted the scriptures be translated in the English language. Why did he do that? Not because he thought Jesus was a nice guy. Not because he thought, well, this is some kind of helpful teaching. 
to guide us in life, not because he thought, well, this is our best understanding of God. It was because he believed that Jesus was the Savior and the King of all humanity that everybody needs to know and personally place their trust in. Polycarp was a bishop of the church in Rome in A.D. 60. And he's known to be the last living connection to Jesus' disciples at the age of 86. He had sat at the feet of John the Apostle, learned from John who had been with Jesus. So Polycarp, Polycarp never met Jesus. He was later, but he'd been with John. And John had been with Jesus. And he was a significant leader in the church. The Roman Empire didn't like that. So they hunted him down and they brought him to trial. 86 years old and they demanded of him. They said, swear by the fortune of Caesar. Caesar was the king the one who demanded worship, the one who hated any allegiance to anyone other than himself. So they said, swear by the fortune of Caesar. And Polycarp said, he said, 86 years I've served Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. He didn't insist on going to the stake, and he refused to be tied to the stake or nailed to the stake. They wanted to do that. They said, no. He said, I'll stand here willingly. It's an honor to die for my Lord. Do you think he did that because he thought Jesus was just kind of a nice guy? Do you think he did that because he believed, well, this is kind of our best understanding? No. No, he did that because he knew and had met Jesus personally and knew him for who he was. And it's because of leaders like this that we can know and follow and walk in the ways of Jesus today. And so he prayed in the moments before he was slaughtered. He prayed, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers in every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and I glorify you along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, to you with him through the Holy Spirit, be glory both now and forever. This beautiful way of Jesus, this way of shalom, this way of peace, the kingdom of God made it to us today because of the strength of faith of these witnesses of the gospel. And so as we face an uncertain future, I don't know what the world's going to look like for my kids, much less my grandkids. I don't know what the church is going to look like. It's no secret to us that the church of Jesus across Canada looks quite a bit different than it did 30 years ago. All kinds of questions. What is church going to look like? I don't know. I don't. But what I do know is what's going to preserve the people of God, what's going to continue the way of Jesus, what will continue to offer peace and life, what will offer salvation is walking in the ways of who Jesus is as the Savior for all, the one who's delivered us from sin. Anything else, reducing him to a good teacher, reducing him to someone who is only about peace and love, is to cut off the branch that we are sitting on. We never would have heard of Jesus had it not been for the passionate convictions 
of those who brought this message. So as we look at Titus 3, a couple things to highlight. First, what is the gospel? We're trapped in sin and evil. Verse 3, at one time you two were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We see God's mercy. Verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. So key. Like, it's not up to you. You can't do this. It's only through what Jesus did for you at the cross. Verse 5 and 6, initiated by the Holy Spirit. He saved us by the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Verse 7, we're justified. Verse 7, so that having been justified by grace, justified meaning set right with God. Verse 7, eternal life, that we would become heirs, having the hope of eternal life, living forever. And so let me be clear with you. If the gospel that you place your trust in, the good news you place your trust in, the good news that you live out and proclaim does not include the ideas expressed here in Titus 3, 3 to 7. Of course, there's other places where this gospel is expressed. If it does not include this, then you're believing in a false gospel and you're on a path toward death. You know that I believe that it's important to work toward peace and justice. We believe in a holistic gospel. It's so good to follow Jesus in these ways. It's important to seek truth. It's important to care for those on the margins. It's important to seek reconciliation politically, to seek reconciliation within our families. It's important that we address areas of sexual abuse, areas of advocating for peace, areas of addressing trauma in people's lives. It's important to seek reconciliation with First Nations people. It's important to ask how we ought to respond in the midst of an opioid crisis or a pornography epidemic among um, I was going to say younger people, not among younger people, among everybody. All of these things, and you know that I've spoken into these various issues, these various pieces in my time with you these last years, because they matter. Jesus cares about these things. He wants to bring peace and wholeness. But on their own, apart from the good news of Jesus, who came to save us from our sin, who came to restore our relationship with God, on their own, they are not the good news the good news of Jesus comes from the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So that's, that's the gospel. That's the, the table which we gather together around now as we consider these two chairs. So the first chair, we'll get to the second chair next week. The first chair is a chair where we make space for God. Now, I mentioned already that first Sunday in which I, I said, we're going to be a, a church about Jesus. And I kind of went on a rant for a couple minutes. We're going to be about Jesus. We're going to be about Jesus. We are people about Jesus. And afterwards, I had some, some wonderful friends that came up and they said, hold on, what about the Holy Spirit? That's a great question, right? It's not just that we, that we have this idea of who Jesus is, that we have these convictions, but this, we also experience God's presence in our life. The Holy Spirit is God's presence within us, around us, empowering us, comforting us, guiding us. And so rightfully so, they asked that question, what about the Holy Spirit? And not to say that I, at that time, was, was opposed to that. I was like, oh yeah, of course. But it, it certainly is something that, and I think that you've seen, that I've, I've grown in is this understanding that we need to be experiencing God every single day. We need to be seeking out His presence and His guidance. And so, not only is it about what table do we sit at, but it's about who do we invite? How are we making space for God to be with us? 
Life is chaotic. It's so easy to kind of push him out. And that's why I think it'll be really helpful for our family to have this reminder in the coming weeks of pulling off that empty chair and be like, oh yeah, like we, we want to make space for God. We want to invite him into this conversation. I want to invite him into my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, my plans. I came across, oh shoot, sorry, I'll be right back. Sorry. <laughs> I have a book I was going to read from. I left it in my office. Came across an inspiring story about what it looks like to invite God to the table of your life from someone by the name of Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley was the, the mother of Charles and John Wesley. And if you're familiar with the story of the Methodist Church, um, they were kind of the founders, the leaders that initiated that movement. A profound influence um, on our lives in the shape of Christianity today. They were wonderful men of God. So this is, this is a story of Susanna Wesley. The health of Susanna Wesley, who is known as the mother of Methodism, was poor. Her marriage to a penniless preacher was deeply dysfunctional, and she lost nine children in infancy. Can you imagine? Nine children in infancy. And she raised ten, almost single-handedly. Their home burned down twice. Her husband was imprisoned twice, this dysfunctional preacher. And yet her simple, honest, persevering prayers undoubtedly changed the world. Susanna Wesley proved herself to be a formidable leader long before her sons John and Charles rose to fame. When her husband, the rector of Epworth Parish Church, was imprisoned for financial mismanagement and his replacement in the pulpit failed miserably to preach the gospel, Susanna took matters into her own hands. She launched a Sunday school in the kitchen for her children. But it began to attract so many of their neighbors, and the meeting quickly reconvened in the barn. Before long, 200 people were gathering every Sunday to listen to Susanna reading sermons, to sing psalms and to pray. Meanwhile, the church building nearby languished empty. Susanna gave her children six hours of schooling a day, educating her daughters, the same as her sons, plus an additional hour of undivided attention with each one of them. Good heavens, I need to go have a nap just listening to her life. How on earth did she do all this? How did she survive the loss of nine children, the heartbreak of a volatile marriage without becoming broken and bitter? How did she manage such a frenetic household while also establishing a Sunday school and educating ten children, two of whom would rise to the heights of international influence? Susanna Wesley was preeminently a woman of prayer. It was that she waited on the Lord each day and that her strength was renewed again and again. But none of this was easy. There was nowhere at home that she could hide to pray. So whenever Susanna wanted time with the Lord, she would pull her apron over her head. This was her prayer room, if you can picture that. Just chaos with kids all around. She's sitting in the kitchen. She just pulls her apron up over her head. In this way, she would pour out her heart to God, mourning her lost babies, interceding for her infuriating husband, and praying for each of her children by name. Such simple maternal prayers whispered daily beneath an apron could hardly have been answered more powerfully. Susanna Wesley exemplifies the world-changing power of simple, persevering prayer. Finding herself called to make disciples not of distant nations, but of her own little tribe at home, she applied herself to the task tirelessly. And by praying faithfully for those ten children, Susanna Wesley, a housewife with a hard life from a small town in rural England, became the mother of some 80 million Methodists in more than 130 nations today. 
And so I share with you that story simply as an example of what it looks like for her to invite Jesus, to invite God, the Holy Spirit, to the table of her life to make that space. And it was sitting in the midst of the chaos with an apron pulled over her head as she spent time with God. I'm going to read to you Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. While he was still speaking, sorry, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus, in the moment that he was under the most pressure, Jesus, in the moment in which his, his world likely felt falling apart, he didn't power up to overcome the situation. He didn't call his disciples to grab their, store, their swords. He didn't plan up. He didn't say, all right, guys, now if you go here and we say this and if we do this, we'll maybe be able to manage the situation. He didn't proceed out. He could have ran. He could have just taken off and avoided the situation. He didn't just numb it away. He could have said, you know what, like we're heading, heading down this path. Let's just, uh, let's, let's drink. They just had the Passover feast. Let's drink. Let's just have as much fun tonight as we can before the pain. What did he do? In his depth of sorrow, he got on his knees and he got before the Father. He made space for his heavenly Father at his table. As you consider what it looks like for you to make space for God at the table of your life, I invite you to consider the following quotes. And I'll just read them, give you a moment to reflect on it, and we'll work through them that way. So we'll jump to the first quote by Beth Moore. Trying to know God and serve him before we come to love him is exhausting. Next. Solitude with God repairs the damage done by the fret and Noise and Clamor of the World by Oswald Chambers. The secret of spiritual success is a hunger that persists. It's an awful condition to be satisfied with one's spiritual attainments. God was and is looking for hungry and thirsty people. Smith Wigglesworth. Desire to see God. Be fearful of losing Him and find joy in everything that can lead to Him. If you act in this way, you will always live in great peace. Teresa of Avila. To fall in love with God is the greatest romance. 
to seek him the greatest adventure, to find him the greatest human achievement, St. Augustine. Prayer is a refusal to live as an outsider to my God and my own soul. Eugene Peterson. And so I invite you with those quotes, what does it look like? Maybe one of them really struck you. What does it look like for you to make space? Because if we don't make space for God in our lives, we can be as committed to the gospel as we want to be. We can be as committed to our neighbor as we can be. But if there's not space to hear, to be sustained, to be reshaped by the presence of the Holy Spirit, we're also walking down the wrong path. For me, as you know, I hear from God when I'm out walking. Preferably in the forest, but out walking anywhere. I don't know if it's, you get the endorphins flowing and, and it just brings clarity and, and whatnot to the mind. I, or it's just, there's not distractions when I'm walking. I'm not looking at my phone. I'm not thinking about, I got to do this, I do this. I don't know. For me, it's when I'm out walking. That's when I hear from God. I'm in a season right now. Things feel chaotic. I just started another MBA course and that's about 15 hours a week. So a lot of early mornings working away at that. And I'm, I'm we're working on some stuff with our home and trying to faithfully transition while these coming weeks. It's not been a great couple of weeks in terms of making that space for God, and I can feel it. I can feel it. It's not good. And so tomorrow, as you know, I have Mondays off. Um, tomorrow, I got a whole pile of things that I got to do, but the most important thing is to go for a walk and just to be with, with God. I'm glad I'm telling you this, because now that I've told you this, I, I have to kind of do it. <laughs> you asked me, did you take time to go for a walk and be with God? That's it for me. Um, what does it look like for you to make space for the Holy Spirit at your table. Now, in preaching this, I'm not saying anything new. You've heard me say this in probably about 10 or 12 or 33 different ways over the last number of years. They've said that the work of a, the work of a preacher is not to come up with something new and different every time. It's pretty much to say the same thing and just find different ways to say it. Um, so this isn't anything new. It's just another reminder to invite the presence of the Holy Spirit into our lives to make space at that table and so I, I bring this challenge to you in the, in the coming two weeks. Set your table with two extra places. And then as you're there, just be attentive to God's presence around that, in that meal. Maybe talk about what God's been saying. May it remind you to be attentive to what God is saying through the remainder of the day as a discipline, as a symbol, as a reminder that we might grow more fully, not just crowding our table with those whom we love and have a great time with, not just being so busy about getting the meal done and over with, but being with God. How are you going to invite God to your table in the coming weeks? I'm going to invite the music team to come on up. I'll have a word of prayer and also to say that uh, kids, kids and parents who are heading down to Sunday school, you can head that direction now already just to quicken that, uh, that transition. So if you're taking part in the, in the kids' connection time down in the basement, you can uh, right now or kind of as we see, you can get up and and make your way down there. God, we thank you that you are present in our lives. Thank you that we have the model of Jesus who cried out to you in his, his place of sorrow. And I, I know for me, and I know as I've, our stories here, God, this is something that we want, but, but we confess that because of the, the, the strength of the desires of our flesh, uh, we so often crowd it out. And so we're inviting you once again to speak to us and to guide us. May we find rich communion with you. I pray that you would inspire us in terms of what does it look like to create that space at the table. We desperately want to hear from you. This is a time in which we're anxious. This is a time in which we're confused. This is a time in which we're hurting and lonely in different ways. We're unsettled. 
It just is our experience by and large in this time. And so we say we desperately need you. Speak to us. Fill us. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you that you have saved us. That you've called us your children. Ah, so good that we can be a part of your family. We honor you and we direct our hearts to you. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen.